encourage you as your pastor to do something that may be a little different for some of you. As you come to church these days, so few of us actually bring Bibles because we've got them on our phone. And, and, and you, having Scripture on the phone is an amazing, amazing technological development. But do you know that there is a phenomenon in sociology called the technological imperative? Which is the idea that if there's a technology that allows something, that you will by nature feel like you have to do that. This is true in medicine, by the way. If there's a new procedure for something, even if it's not always the best, doctors feel the need to utilize the technology. And Christians feel the need to utilize the technology of our phone. But I just want to ask you a question. Is reading God's Word on your phone the best way for you to engage with the text of Holy Scripture? If it is, it might be. And if it is, please keep using your phone. But if it's not, I want you to know that it is okay, and I want to encourage you to actually bring your physical Bible to church. And if you need one, they're there in the back. We're going to print it in the bulletin every week. But sometimes I'll refer, like I'll refer this morning to Genesis 12 or to 2 Kings 4. It's nice to have a Bible to flip through. So don't be taken by the technological imperative. It's okay to use whatever resources God has given you to best interact with the text during the sermon. Deal? Okay. We're in John chapter 6. John was written in the first century church to Jew and Gentile in Asia Minor in a world of rising tensions for the purpose that he gives us at the end of the book. These things are written, John 20 verse 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Written for those of us who don't yet believe, who are struggling with the things of God to come and understand what scripture really means what the good news of the gospel is, and written to those of us who already believe that by believing you may have life in his name. It's written to all of us in this room. And last week we introduced the principle of John chapter 6. We said that Jesus' sufficiency reveals itself in our helplessness so that we become the objects of and channels for his overflowing power. And today we're going to look at the second aspect of this amazing miracle. The only miracle in Scripture, by the way, that all four gospel writers talk about except for the resurrection. And so therefore, it's worth two weeks for us. And we're going to look this second week at a very interesting question. Let's prepare for it as we look at God's Word together. I'll read John chapter 6 verses 1 to 15. And if you would stand with me as I read it, we will read it as those who believe this word intends to change us. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. 
And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, Jesus in this text asks Philip a very interesting question, doesn't he? Where are we to get food that all these people may eat? And we looked last week at the fact that this feels like a very unfair question. It's as though Philip were to respond, don't, don't throw all this on me at the last minute, Jesus. There are 5,000 men out there. 200 denarii, which is eight months wages, wouldn't be enough to buy bread for all these people. And Andrew, rescuing his friend, jumps into action and he says, well, Jesus, here's a boy with five barley loaves and two fish. And the question that emerges out of John chapter 6 is this, what are we to do when Jesus asks something of us that doesn't seem fair? Can you think of examples? What are they? Have you ever been asked to become a friend in the inner circle, maybe even a primary friend of someone who you watch make destructive decision after destructive decision? Like, have you ever been asked to fulfill your marriage vows in the midst of a very difficult marriage? Have you ever been asked to cut corners at work because, well... All the industry does it, and we have to keep up with the competition. What do you do when you realize that you work for an industry that preys on the poor? What are you to do when perhaps what you're doing is actually making things worse for human flourishing? What are you asked to do when someone asks if you will attend their gay wedding? Real questions. Questions that seem unfair, that are hard. Where are we to buy food for all these people that they may eat? So what's the context of John chapter 6? Let's drill down into it. It says after this. Now stop. After this. In Greek, it's obscure. It's metatata. It doesn't tell you exactly when it was. If you go back to John chapter 5 verse 1. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews. What feast is that? If it was the feast of Purim, then John 6 is about a month after John 5. If it was the feast of the Passover in John 5, then John 6 also at the Passover means that John 6 happened a year later. We don't know. After this is a phrase that John uses in 
John 5.1. He uses it in John 3.22. It's just a way that John is saying the story continues. What's the problem for Jesus and the disciples? They're, they're the context of, of a large crowd of people who have followed them to the other side of the lake, probably from the western side of the lake to the northeastern side of the lake. To you, it's this way. At Bethesda. And why did they follow him? Verse 2, they followed him because they saw the signs that he was doing. And when was it? Well, it was during Passover. It was March or April. We know this because of verse 10. It says there was much grass, or in Greek, much vegetation in the place. And what happened? What had just happened in the context? Well, Jesus in John chapter 5 had just healed a man born blind. He'd been blind for 38 years. Do you remember the story? We talked about it back in May. And Jesus heals him. And on what day of the week does Jesus heal this man? On the Sabbath. And so therefore, who gets upset that Jesus heals this man at the uh, sheep gate in Jerusalem on the Sabbath? But the religious Jewish leaders, they're all up in arms that Jesus had the audacity to heal this man. And more than that, that Jesus says, well, I can heal on the Sabbath because as my father was working, so I am working. And they are beside themselves that his, he would have the audacity and the chutzpah to claim to be God. And so they conspire, John tells us, to kill him. And so Jesus goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And he does this just after telling the Jews the longest biographical sketch you'll ever read in Scripture about what Jesus says is true of himself at the very end of John chapter 5. And so... Here we are on the shores of Galilee, and Jesus gives us a principle, and he gives us a practice. The principle we saw last week, that God's sufficiency reveals itself in our helplessness. And they felt helpless. Starvation is a horrible thing to witness. It's rare in our day. But did you know that in 1915, even in 1915, much less in, in, you know, 20 to 30 A.D., People spent half of their income on food. How much more so would it be in AD 20 or 25, AD 30? How much, what percentage do you think the average American spends on their food today? Any guesses? In 1915, it was 50% of their income was spent on food. What is it today? The literature says it's 6%. But back then in the day, to eat was, was a large part of why they worked. They had to work to provide for their families. And so starvation is a very real thing. And here they are, helpless before this crowd of people. And um, what are they to do? And Jesus shows us an amazing practice that he invites us into. God reveals his sufficiency in our helplessness so that we become the objects of of and the channels for his overflowing power. And the disciples show our typical responses to hard questions or hard situations that we find ourselves in. How do the disciples respond? First, they respond with despair. Notice how Philip responds. Philip says, 200 denarii wouldn't provide enough food for us. Jesus, it is like way beyond us to possibly help all of these people. Like we despair. And sometimes I feel like this as a minister, if I can be quite honest, I feel like this is even as a father sometimes. Like, gosh, Lord, I'm supposed to be a minister, which means I'm supposed to be, like, I'm supposed to know the Bible and be a good dad. 
but it's so hard, I feel like just throwing in the towel. How do I do this? Or I'm supposed to plant a church in an area that, well, it seems like there's churches in every corner, so it should be easy. But no, there's so much deconstruction of what people actually believe wrong about the gospel before you can actually teach them what is true about the gospel. This veneer of Christian culture makes it incredibly difficult to be the kind of countercultural community Christ calls us to be in our world. It's hard, and it's tempting for us just to despair. The disciples see nothing but five loaves and, and two fish. And if you've gone to church since you were a child, you'll think back about your Sunday school lessons where you see a young, a young boy, you know, maybe no, 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 not much older probably than, than Bennett here on the front row, six or seven years old. But in Greek, it actually uses a word that refers to a boy as one who was between 12 and 20. So you might think about this as, a, as instead of seeing, you know, the liquid brown eyes of a young child holding bread and fish to these disciples, you would think of a young teenager like Joseph in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It says in Genesis that he was the same word and he was 17. So probably a young man, a teenager, a mature boy had bread. And where did he come from? We don't know in John. It doesn't tell us specifically, but we know from the other Gospels. Again, all four Gospels talk about this story. That he was probably with the disciples because they say, well, we have five loaves and two fish. So this young boy was probably, I mean, no mother or father would release their son, 12 or 20, into a crowd of thousands of people without supervision. So it's probable that this boy was with his disciples or his family was traveling with his disciples and, and he was close at hand. And so they say, well, here, we have, we have this bread and Jesus knows this meager supply is enough in his hands. And so instead of despairing, Jesus says, well, tell the people to sit down. And the word that he uses in Greek to sit is the word that you would use to set yourself at a table setting at a banquet. Sit down, friends. We're about to have a banquet. And so they sit down, they sit down as families in the midst of the crowd. But would they expect a feast? Listen, the lesson here for those of us who despair is that we often have very little. And, and what we have, quite frankly, lo looks fairly useless to us. But perhaps is it not that if we offer it to Jesus... What seems so ordinary becomes something so extraordinary. This miracle teaches us to trust in Christ and to take our poor and feeble efforts to be used by him. I mean, think about your efforts at work. I mean, are you making a difference, those of you who are in nonprofits? Are you making a difference? Day by day, you hold up your five loaves and two fish and say, Lord, take what I have. It doesn't seem like much. You counsel people, and you feel like there's no progress in your clients. Session by session, day by day, you hold up your five loaves and two fish. Students, you feel like, oh my gosh, I'm not making any progress. This is not helping me. But day by day, you study, and you hold up your five loaves and your two fish. God is in the business, friends, of taking what is little and making it amazing. Amen? He uses the ordinary things to do extraordinary things. And so you think that 
the, like the bread and the wine of the Lord's table is just bread and wine. I mean, Jesus is there and he uses it to shape and mold you. And hearing my voice and studying God's word, there's something mystical that happens. Yes, I use the word mystical as a Presbyterian. There's something that shapes and ha- it makes you something beautiful because we are conformed to his image. If you will let yourself be formed. And the posture to let yourself be formed is raising your hands to say, here are my five loaves and two fish. I know it's not much, Jesus. It's all I have, but I give it to you. The widow's might. For example, when a friend is in great need, we may feel that there is nothing that we can do to, or say to help them. But it might be enough just to be present with them. A hug may be all you can give. And sometimes that's more than enough. Because what it seems is so little with one person becomes something profound for a person in need when there are five or ten that are doing it. And this is the power of the church. We hold up our bread and we hold up our fish and say, Lord, it's not much. But when we do it together, the Lord uses it to shape and mold us into his image. And he uses us to spread the light of the gospel in our context for the good of our city. When someone is lonely and we invite them over for a meal, you know, we may find that as we invited them over, we talk to our spouse and they're like, well, we were going to eat leftovers. But you know what? Leftovers is enough. Your five loaves and two fish. For the first response the disciples give us is that we often despair. The second response is a kind of frantic activism. This is Andrew. Notice that Andrew takes matters into his own hands. He tries to solve the problem with a burst of activity. Here, here, Jesus. Here's a young boy. Here's a boy. Here, he's got five loaves and two fish. Like, let's solve the problem. We can do it. And how easy it is, how easy it is, how easy it is for us as a young church, nine years in, a young church still, for us to be able to say, Lord, bless the decisions that we have just made. And when all is complete, we say, Lord, would you bless my work, correct my errors, multiply my labors, and please let it all work out for me? Isn't that how you often operate? I mean, we're modern people. And we're born in America. And one of the great sins our culture tells us is not immediately taking action when there's a problem at hand. What if we stop to pray What if we prayed before taking action? Isn't it not better to pray at the start and at the middle and at the end? That we can ask the Lord to bless the work of our hands? Psalm 90 is this beautiful prayer. And at the end of the prayer in Psalm 90, it says, May the favor of our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands. A prayer prayed before they got to work. Before the activism started. Establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The task is to begin with prayer. So some despair, some jump to frantic activism. Response number three is the response that Christ encourages. And that is that you trust God and you humbly do your work. Doesn't seem that amazing, but it's very hard to do, isn't it? You trust God. And you humbly do your work. The disciples brought what they had of G- to Jesus and they waited to see what he might do. It, it's a basic principle of the faith that you stand before the Lord and you say, this is what I have, Lord. Do with it what you can. 
Multiply it, if you will. And you trust in God, and you humbly do your work. And as you do that, you become the objects of and channels for his overflowing power. There's no question about it. In John chapter 6, the emphasis of John at every turn is about Jesus and what Jesus does. He does a miracle to set up his later discourse. We'll see in a couple of weeks where he explains that he himself is the bread of life. But don't miss that Jesus employs his disciples to be his wait staff. They are the ones passing out the bread and the fish. And can you imagine what it's like? Like, could you, like deacons and elders, could you imagine what it was like if we were to serve communion and we ran out? And we look to our right and we see a tray full of wine that we didn't put there. And then again and again and again. Wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like to be the disciples? The, the fish that they talk about was probably, they were probably small sardines. It may have even been a spread that you put on, on the bread. Because notice when they collect what's left over, John talks about the barley loaves. He doesn't talk about collecting the fish. So maybe the fish was to complement the bread. We don't know. But can you imagine feeding all these people and just being amazed that God would use you to distribute his miracle to all these people? You should imagine it. Because he does it in you every week if you'll have ears to hear. Will you walk in sexual purity? Will you be hospitable? Will you fight against sin in your own life? Here, Lord, here's what I have to offer. Multiply it according to your will. Are we people who will trust in God and humbly do our work in our little corner of the world? And when God changed water into wine in John chapter 2, he did it alone. And when he healed the royal official's son in chapter 4, he did it alone. When he healed the man born blind in John chapter 5, what did he do? He did it alone. But here in John chapter 6, he invites us into the miracle. Maybe that's why all the gospels write about it. To say, don't, don't just sit around and marvel at Jesus. He's calling you into his story to be used by him. And when we allow Jesus to evolve us in his work, we find another amazing thing about this passage, that this principle becomes true because he uses you to be the conduit through which he blesses others. At the end of the story, there's 12 baskets overflowing, symbolizing to the original audience who is hearing that all of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, will be satisfied through the work of Jesus. How does that work? Jesus has always promised God has always promised that I will satisfy you. I will complete the promises I made to you. Consider the passage that Eric and Lacey read earlier today, the, the story of Abraham. Do you know that Ur of the Chaldees that Abraham left? you know that archaeologists have found that there were toilets and there was second-story plumbing in Ur of the Chaldees? And Abraham lived in a city that was incredibly technologically advanced at the time. I mean, he was a city boy. And the city boy was asked to leave, leave Ur, and I want you to go into the wilderness, and I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. I mean, can you imagine what it was like for Abraham to be walking out 
of the gates of the city as the gates recede behind him. And he sees walking among thieves and robbers and those who lived outside the gate with his wife into the howling wilderness. Can you imagine that? And Abraham says, here I am. You've asked a question that seems unfair. But I trust you and I'm walking humbly. Do your work through me. 